Hi, this is Rachel Hyen and Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after this podcast for a brief message from our sponsors. And remember to visit www.theresidentreview.com for our study outlines. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series on local anesthesia, something that we're frequently tested on. And I'm excited to have Heather here with me as my co-founder in chief. (laughs) All right, Heather, why don't you get us started? So there have been some questions discussing pain fibers, A, delta, and C fibers specifically, usually blocked first, followed by temperature, touch, and proprioception, and then finally motor function. So all share three chemical features, either an ester or amide linkage, Esters include drugs like cocaine, procaine, and tetracaine. They all have cane in them and also one eye. They're hydrolyzed by pseudocolonesterase into PABA, P-A-B-A, which is a breakdown product that can cause allergic reactions. And that happens. The recommended course of action is to administer IM epi, 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams. Um, But you can also use IV epi if you have an inadequate IM response. And then the other type is the amides, lidocaine and bupivacaine are examples. And you can remember this because amide has an eye and those two drugs have two eyes in them and they are metabolized by hepatic microsomal enzymes and their metabolites are excreted by the kidney. So for bupivacaine, the maximal dose, sometimes we get tested on these maximal doses, 2.5 mg per kg. It has a longer duration of action due to its protein binding capacity and lipid solubility correlates with its potency. The addition of epi prolongs the duration of any anesthetic. And then cocaine, which we use less frequently here at Duke, but other, <laughs> other institutions <laughs> use it. that's not a dig at anyone else. Uh, 1.5 mix per kg, lidocaine, 4.5 mix per kg. And then with the addition of epi, you can increase that dose safely to seven mix per kg. And contrary to what other specialties may say, you actually can use lido with epi in the hand and in the fingers for your digital blocks. And then one question we had several years ago was that you are to wait 25 minutes after injection for the lowest risk of bleeding and the highest vasoconstrictive effect of lido with epi. Phentolamine reverses the effect of lidocaine. That's the antidote. And then in terms of pediatric dosing, epinephrine in children, you want to give three mix per kg maximally, one to 100,000. And then just quickly touch on topical anesthetics as these are relevant, especially pre-laser or pre-injectables. For the maximum effectivity of EMLA cream, you want to wait a full hour. And then in terms of tumescent, you can actually tolerate higher lidocaine doses due to the rate of absorption. And then you can give up to 35 to 55 mg per kg of lidocaine in your your tumescent. And then the maximal concentration of the tumescent occurs at 8 to 12 hours. So a lot of times this is after the patient is discharged from their procedure from the hospital. Thanks, Heather, for talking to us a little bit about local anesthesia. We do get questions a lot on calculating the dose. So like she said, 1% lidocaine has... 10 milligrams per ml. So each ml of lidocaine of 1% lidocaine will have 10 milligrams and that should help with your calculations. For blocks, we just have several that we've been tested on. Remember that an infraorbital nerve block will numb the teeth from the ipsilateral central incisor to the two lateral tube bicuspids. 
a tap block, which we frequently use in abdominoplasty or abdominally based free flop reconstruction uses the triangle of petite, which is the triangle bounded by the latissimus dorsi, external oblique and iliac crest. And remember you infiltrate between the internal oblique and the transversus muscle because the nerves lie in between this plane. And then we were tested on conscious sedation a couple years ago. Remember this is used commonly for aesthetic procedures. Hypotension is common and you should treat this with IV fluids first before any kind of vasopressors. For ketamine, we frequently use this in the ED for pediatric lacerations for a form of conscious sedation. And remember that IV has a shorter duration than IM, but it does have lesser incidence of laryngospasm and lesser incidence of postoperative nausea and vomiting. I'll next go over a little bit about malignant hypothermia and lidocaine toxicity. So malignant hyperthermia is a dreaded complication from an anesthetic. And this is inherited in an autosomal dominant manner. Patients with myopathy will present with a hypermetabolic reaction to anesthetic gases like halothane and fluorine, isoflurane, sevoflurane, desflurane, any of the fluorines. They're also susceptible to the paralytic succinylcholine. So if the patient develops rigors or cardiac instability or any form of instability, you'll stop the gases You'll cool the patient, give saline, and then the reversal agent is dantrolene. Patients with malignant hyperthermia will have metabolic abnormalities, including, including hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis, and hyperphosphatemia. Rhabdomyolysis were tested on. This can occur after compartment syndrome or after ischemia to a muscle with reperfusion syndrome. It can result in shock. The metabolic abnormalities include hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, metabolic acidosis, like I said, compartment syndrome and acute renal failure. And then finally, a little bit about lidocaine toxicity. So these patients can present with dizziness, agitation, lethargy, tinnitus, metallic taste, perioral paresthesia, slurred speech, euphoria, hypotension, and bradycardia. You will treat this with a 20% lipid emulsion. Remember, like Heather said, lidocaine peaks tumescently in eight to 12 hours. And then blood pressure is the least affected by lidocaine levels, which we've been tested on. All right, Heather, take us through some more factoids. factoids. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say. Redman syndrome has come up on our exams. Um, It's really just generalized discomfort and an erythematous rash that involves the face, neck, and upper torso. And it's caused by vancomycin administration in some patients. And the treatment is to really just add an antihistamine and slow down the infusion rate of the vancomycin. It is not thought to be due to any sort of antibodies. And then we kind of touched on anaphylaxis, but in general, anaphylaxis should be treated with epinephrine intramuscularly. Common site of administration is the anterolateral thigh. As soon as the diagnosis is made and the administration dose is 0.01 mg per kg. And then also remember to initiate things in pertinent to your ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation if you suspect a patient is in anaphylaxis. So we've also had some questions about cardiac abnormalities as they relate to like preoperative workup and intraoperative risk. In terms of drug-eluting stents, some of our patients have these. You should continue both aspirin and clopidogrel throughout surgery. If the patient has METs greater than four, you may proceed with surgery. If atrial fibrillation has existed for greater than 48 hours, then in general, you need a TEE, transesophageal echocardiogram, prior to cardioversion. For patients with von Willebrand factor and factor eight deficiency, you give desmopressin prior. So that's the treatment for those coagulopathies. Patients with an acute MI should receive oxygen, aspirin, and electrolyte supplementation. Again, 
probably not treated these patients since I was an intern or work, working in the ICU, but you want to sup your K greater than four, your mag greater, greater than two to prevent life-threatening arrhythmias is also relevant for patients with seizure disorders. So we also get questions about cardiac arrhythmias and AV block is an increased PR interval. Specifically, that's a first degree AV block. Second degree AV block occurs with intermittent failure of the conduction of the impulse to the ventricles and you see dropped QRS complexes. You can have multifocal atrial tachycardia with abnormal automaticity. You de the patients demonstrate irregular rate and rhythm characterized by three or more morphologically different P waves, 110 to 140 beats per minute. But more commonly, we see patients with AFib. It's one of the most commonly seen dysrhythmias encountered in the ICU setting in particular, but it's really just a normal complex tachycardia and you won't see the P waves. And then in A flutter, you sort of see that sawtooth deformity on EKG. And then just some points in terms of operative positioning. If you have a patient in lithotomy, you want to have leg holders that incorporate heel support to prevent pressure injury to the heels and to the perineal nerve. Arm abduction should be limited to no greater than 90 degrees. You should avoid dorsal extension of the arm. You want to pad the postcondylar groove of the humerus. So really make sure you're padding all pressure points in the arm. And then when the patient is in the prone position, the neck should be well stabilized in a neutral and non-extended position. So then there's been some questions about ERAS protocols, early recovery after surgery. Ideal protocols for these ERAS patients include local and regional anesthesia as an adjunct to your pain medication. This includes things like Expirel, which is liposomal bupivacaine, and then drugs like gabapentin can decrease narcotic needs. And risk factors for postoperative nausea and vomiting include women, patients with a history of postoperative nausea and vomiting, non-smokers, interestingly, Younger patients, uh, certain types of surgery are more prone to causing postoperative nausea, nausea and vomiting. And then if you have a BMI of greater than 30, that increases your, your risk. You can also have increased postoperative nausea and vomiting depending on what type of anesthesia you get. So inhalational anesthetics are more prone to causing it. Things like nitrous oxide. You can give the patients a drug called a prepitent, 40 milligrams orally, one to three hours prior to the induction of general anesthesia. And this actually has a really high efficacy against opioid-induced nausea. And then other postoperative drugs you can administer for nausea include Zofran, droperidol, metoclopramide, and promethazine. We've had questions about postoperative delirium, which is acute brain dysfunction that is characterized by changes in levels of consciousness, inattention, or, or disorganized thinking. Patients can present sort of in like either a hyperactive or hypoactive state. And these patients generally tend to be elderly. And some things you can do to help avoid postoperative delirium include avoiding benzos and antihistamines. Okay. So next I get to go over some fun stuff like organ donor, renal failure, transplantation, and VTE. So remember, we were tested about eligible organ donors. Contraindications include no consent from a parent or guardian, any kind of prion disease like Creutzfeldt, Jakob, metastatic cancer. But remember, HIV is no longer a, a contraindication for organ donor. Renal failure, we're frequently tested on. So if you're treating AKI in a diabetic patient, you want to use isotonic crystalloids. So crystalloids over colloids in general, glucose control, no diuretics or dopamine in these patients and a low protein diet. 
remember to calculate FINA or fractional excretion of sodium. The acronym, which we've been taught by our chief resident is secret urinal, which is the serum creatinine times the urine sodium. So secret divided by the urine creatinine over the serum sodium times 100. And less than 1% is suggestive of a pre-renal disease. Greater than 2% is indicative of salt wasting, acute tubular necrosis. Free body water, which we were tested on, is the amount of free water required to bring the sodium back to normal. And it is calculated by one minus the sodium divided by 140. So think 140 is normal. So it's one minus 140 divided by 140. That's one minus one. So it's zero liters free body water deficit. Acute hyperkalemia, which we've seen as interns, remember you can treat this with insulin and glucose, calcium, and beta-2 agonists like albuterol and diuretics. Chronic kidney disease from immunosuppression. Yes, we've been tested on this. It's usually due to calcineurin inhibitors. In the pre-transplant setting, you'll treat renal conditions, avoid hypotension and hypertension. You'll limit nephrotoxic drugs, IV contrast, hypovolemia, and ischemia time. Postoperatively, you want to decrease your trough levels, treat your hypertension, treat your hyperglycemia, and again, avoid IV contrast. Transplant rejection. There's lots of different types. I always get this wrong. Hyperacute is a humoral response mediated by the antibodies that are already present in the host at the time of transplantation. So this is rejection within the first few minutes to hours. Accelerated starts within day two to five after transplant, and it's a form of hyperacute that results from pre-sensitization to donor antigens. So the patients will already have preformed antibodies. It's just a little bit of a delayed presentation. Acute is regulated by the activation of T cells. This can occur within the first six months, and it's characterized by short-term organ dysfunction. You can have rashes, cutaneous mucosal manifestations, and you treat that with immunosuppression. And then chronic is antibody AMC cell mediated. It's indolent and progressive arterial sclerosis and fibrosis of the transplanted organ within months to years. That is very difficult to treat. And then remember a graft versus host disease is a cellular response caused by activation of transplanted graft immune cells by the recipient cells. Whew. Okay. Next we'll talk a little bit about cerebral edema or head injuries. So this can result after head trauma. It is from hyponatremia where you'll get cerebral edema. You can treat this with hypertonic saline 3% to decrease intracranial pressure. You can also use hyperventilation, mannitol, diuretics, and surgical decompression. Neurogenic diabetes insipidus is also caused by head trauma and it's a deficiency in vasopressin or ADH. Okay. So venothromboembolism were frequently tested on. We use the Caprini risk assessment model. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but basically the highest risk factors. So three points for a Caprini model is age greater than 75, a history of DVT, positive factor five Leiden, history of HIT, elevated anticardiolipin or serum homocysteine, prothrombus or lupus anticoagulant, congenital or acquired thrombophilia, and a family history of thrombosis. If you have major plastic surgery cases, anything greater than 60 minutes, you should undergo prevention with compressive venodynes and intraoperative prophylaxis. Anything greater than a score of seven needs VTE reduction strategies, including considering extended use of low molecular weight heparin. Rivaroxaban is otherwise known as Zeralto. It inhibits factor 10A, which helps convert prothrombin to thrombin. It's contraindicated in renal failure and in DEXA or factor 10A has been recently released and is used to reverse Sorelto. Remember aspirin interferes with platelet function. So patients undergoing minor cutaneous surgery have been shown to be at a no greater risk of hemorrhagic complications than those with no agents. Coumadin, I remember this by 1972. So it affects the vitamin K dependent factors. So you have 10, nine, seven, and two, 1972. 
Heparin prevents clot propagation by blocking thrombin-mediated activation of fibrinogen to fibrin. And then NSAIDs, again, inhibit COX-1 and COX-2, and ultimately the production of thromboxane A2. And treatment of any presumed DVT or PE includes IV heparin. All right, Heather, why don't you take us through some other facts? <laughs> Let's move on to sepsis, another super awesome topic. Obviously, antibiotics should be initiated as soon as possible after recognition and within one hour for both sepsis and septic shock. Any delay in antibiotic administration is associated with increasing mortality and end or organ damage. Patients with septic shock can be clinically identified by having both of two criteria, a vasopressor requirement in order to maintain a mean arterial pressure or MAP of 65 millimeters of mercury or greater, and a serum lactate level of greater than two millimoles per liter in the absence of hypovolemia. You should include fluid resuscitation with IV crystalloid, blood transfusion if the hemoglobin is less than seven, and then the vasopressors are a second line after the patient has been adequately fluid resuscitated. We've been tested on trauma and pregnancy. We want to perform a fast exam when the patient's arrived in the emergency department, which is an abdominal ultrasound. Um, you want to have four hours of electronic fetal monitoring, especially in patients greater than 23 weeks of gestation. Usually this is done in the OB unit. We want to determine the patient's RH status and those that are RH negative, the mothers should be given Rogam within 72 hours to prevent sensitization. At greater than 32 weeks, especially you want to make sure you log roll the patients to the left side to prevent compression of the vena cava by the baby. Medications in pregnancy, local anesthetics are generally considered to be okay. You want to avoid benzodiazepines. Opiates are considered okay. And then just some things about trauma and activation of trauma protocols in general, RRT or rapid response was created to intervene in the care of a greater number of hospitalized patients at an earlier stage than actual code in the event of clinical deterioration. Try to prevent things like coding. It can be called for hypotension, rapid heart rate, respiratory distress, altered consciousness. The code team itself responds specifically to things like cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, airway obstruction. And we've had some questions related to things we learn in our BLS and ACLS courses. PEA or pulseless electrical activity. You want to use EPI, which you give one milligram every three to five minutes. This DPR protocol should not be halted for drug administration, and you should not shock patients who are in PEA. Patients who are not in PEA or are in other rhythms, CPR should be resumed immediately after shocks are delivered without pausing for rhythm or pulse check. So the protocol is two minutes of CPR followed by rhythm check, and then the CPR is repeated if needed. High quality compression, chest compressions include 100 to 120 per minute, which is exhausting if you've had to do it, with five centimeters of sternal decompression. So you're really pressing on these patients at a rate of 30 to two or compressions to breasts or 10 breasts approximately per minute. And then in the event your code does not go well and you have patients that unfortunately you presume are in brain death, a confirmation of this would include the absence of brainstem reflexes, which to, the absence needs to be present in order for brain death to be confirmed. You also have absence of corneal reflex, absence of respiratory rate, absence of nystagmus on caloric testing, absence of mild cough or gag during uh, tracheal manipulation. And then you need to determine the cause of brain death prior to brain death examination. 
Speaking of brains, just <laughs> I guess we're moving on to craniosynostosis. <laughs> so random. Sorry. <laughs> this is like the hardest stuff. But some surgeons, many surgeons will give TXA in their craniosynostosis, specifically open vault cases to prevent blood loss in these babies. TXA inhibits conversion of plasminogen to plasmin. I know there's been a lot of discussion of TXA use in aesthetic literature lately for other indications. We will talk a little bit about the respiratory quotient, which using indirect calorimetry measurements is calculated by VCO2 to VO2, carbon dioxide produced to oxygen consumed. The ideal ratio for a respiratory quotient is 0.8 to 0.9. This is in relation to the questions we get about caloric intake and like being underfed, essentially. Let's see. Operative fire is more awesome topics. You know, at risk when you have open oxygen sources such as mass and nasal cannulas, especially around things like bovies. Fire obviously needs fuel, an oxidizer, and an ignition source. So it fuels can include alcoholic-based cleaners or preps, drapes. Ignition sources include cautery, like we talked about. And then the oxidizer can be nitrous oxide or oxygen, which is obviously being administered to the patient while they're asleep. And then just more in terms of lung capacity and breathing, we've been tested on minute ventilation, which is calculated by multiplying the respiratory rate and the tidal volume, which is the amount of air or gas displaced during each normal breath. Residual volume is the volume of air still remaining in the lungs after the most forcible exhalation. And then dead volume is the volume of air or gas that does actually not take part in any gas exchange. Inspiratory capacity is the volume of air that enters the lung during your maximal forcible inspiration. And vital capacity is the total amount of air that can be forcibly expired from the most forcible inspiration possible. And then moving on to tension pneumothorax, really it's a clinical diagnosis. You look for things like tachypnea, dyspnea, JVD, jugular venous distension, tracheal deviation to the opposite side of the tension pneumothorax hypotension and hyper resonance on the affected side. If the patient is hypotensive and tachypnic, you want to treat with a needle decompression at the second intercostal space followed by a chest tube. And a, really attention pneumothorax is when there's injury to the lung and air leakage into the pleural space that can't escape. So each with each breath patient gets worse. So really you don't want to wait. We'll move on a little bit to infectious complications, things like needle sticks. In patients with hep C, it's recommended that follow-up testing be redone at six weeks, three months, and six months if you've been exposed to hep C via needle stick. We'll talk a little bit about antibiotics prophylaxis. So the current ASPS consensus for prophylaxis with antibiotics in terms of clean contaminated, contaminated, or dirty plastic surgery of the head, neck, orthodontic, hand, and skin. Those are all situations where ASPS does recommend we give prophylactic antibiotics and it's also indicated for clean cases of the breast. Other clean cases do not benefit from antibiotic prophylaxis. A surgical site infection is classified as such if it occurs within 30 days and it's limited to the skin and subcutaneous tissues. You look for things like pyrrolid drainage, positive cultures, and the diagnosis is generally made by the surgeon. And then antibiotics for lower extremity trauma. You want to give early administration of antibiotics within three hours. That's super important in terms of infection prevention after tra traumatic open fractures, especially. It's more important than the time to the washout, who does the surgery and the severity of the trauma. Generally, you give a cephalosporin plus a gram negative covering antibiotic in contaminated wounds. 
All right. Well, thanks guys for tuning into our local anesthesia, which is basically a mixed bag of facts about general anesthesia, complications surrounding surgery. And I'm happy to be presenting with my co-chief, Heather, who is my co-founder for this podcast. So thanks for joining us today, Heather. Woo-hoo. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.